Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies. I'm always looking for great independent podcasts. You know that. Quantum Week is one of those podcasts. I've got Chris from Quantum Week here to tell you all about it. Chris, how you doing? Good, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Chris, first off, I found your podcast. I absolutely love the premise. I don't know if anybody else is doing this premise, but if they are, I don't think they're doing it as well as you and Matt. <laughs> I mean, you, you guys are really rocking it. So tell me about the premise and what it's all about first. Yeah, so what Quantum Week does is we take a random week uh, in the last, it's, it's the last 41 years, uh-huh. and we talk about uh, random movies, music, headlines, anything that kind of happened that week. The primary focus of our, of our show, though, is, is probably the movies and the music. Mm-hmm. Um, like for instance, this week we're in 1986, so 1987, excuse me. So we're covering like Spaceballs, Predator, uh, the Dragnet movie with uh, Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. So, uh-huh. uh, but we're also covering songs like from Bon Jovi or Whitney Houston. So, um, yeah, it's fun. So every week we go to obviously a different a different week in in the last forty one years, and uh, and we we review those movies and music. So how did you come up with this concept? Yeah, I, I'm obsessed with time. Um, okay. I go Quantum Leap when I was a kid, uh-huh. uh, and and the premise of that show was that he would go to a different uh, date in his lifetime, and um, he'd have to like save the world or save certain elements. It was more of an action theme thing. Obviously, yeah. we're not we're not saving anybody in our show. Uh, but, <laughs> but I like the idea and I love movies. Uh, I'm a big movie nerd and my co-host Matt is a big music guy. Uh, he's uh-huh. a musician and he really loves uh, different eras in music. So, um, uh, we were talking, uh, I'm in New Hampshire. We were talking at a restaurant in New Hampshire and like, let's, let's kind of merge our, our, uh, things we both enjoy and, uh, and quantum week just kind of works and, uh, we've kind of been just running with it. We've been having a blast doing it the last year. Yeah, I really like what you guys do with it. I guess the thing that I like the most is that you're prepared and you actually watch the movie. So I got to say, I mean, you're doing 87 and Spaceballs was your first movie for this week. And I told you before we started recording, I was kind of pissed at you for not liking the Spaceballs. And then I thought about it. You know, it's been that many years since I've watched Spaceballs and it's probably that bad. So. So I'm, I'm not mad now. <laughs> it wasn't terrible. It's not uh, like as bad as say like Willow uh, or Alvin and the Chipmunks. I'm trying to think of some of the worst movies we've covered. Battlefield Earth is a terrible one. Yeah. So it's not, it's not that bad. Um, but it's, I just think it was Mel Brooks just like pulling punches. And, you know, I know you're a big comedy guy, obviously, Scott. You know, when it, Like with the producers with Blazing Saddles, like Mel Brooks was just, you know, throwing haymakers. And with the Spaceballs, he took a little, you know, quite a bit off the fastball and, and it, it in com- <laughs> I don't know if that works. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. And I mean, it had a lot of great gags and like you said, Brick Moranis was great and John Candy was great. The rest of it, eh, it was, it was just 
it was just basically a movie put together so he could put gags into it, whereas not much of a story. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't like plot driven at all. And some of those genre movies aren't. I mean, Naked Gun or, uh, you know, Airplane are just thrown in there for just gags. But I think those two movies, those gags work better than this one. Yeah. Um, I mean, anything about Blazing Saddles, I guess, he's just basically spoofing a, a Western, a young Frankenstein. He's spoofing a horror. Yeah. But I think those movies, I feel like, had a bit more edge, even though they're older. Like, and, and I think this one, I mean, but we talked about the show, and, you know, Star Wars is a kid's movie. I mean, you know, it really is. It's yeah. designed for children. I enjoy it. It's one of my favorite movies, but it's it's a kid's movie. Maybe this is kind of a genre uh, spoof movie for kids. Maybe it's a comedy for kids. Because mm-hmm. I when I was a kid, um, yeah. you know, maybe that was the intended audience. Yeah, and I think that where he missed the boat there was most of his other movies, the characters were a little bit more sympathetic. I mean, you really kind of liked them. And in Spaceballs, it was, was kind of like, eh, you don't care if they die. It's okay. Except for John Candy. Yeah, I will, yeah. Yeah, I will. <laughs> John Candy are so good. I know Moranis is the bad guy there, so you're kind of rooting for him to fail, yeah. but he's they're so great on screen. Um, like, and, you know, Moranis, of course, is in Ghostbusters, one of the greatest comedies of the 80s. Yeah. And John Candy's in Plain Strange Automobiles, another one of the greatest comedies of the 80s. So it's certainly those two guys really kind of elevated this movie probably better than it should have been. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, John Candy's, I mean, he's the kind of guy that you see him on screen, you can't help but root for him. I yeah. mean, John Candy could play Stalin in a movie. And yeah. I think you'd be rooting for John. <laughs> you'd still be like, well, that's Stalin. You know, he wasn't half bad. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's what I like about you because you really get into it. And the the conversation between you and Matt just gets so animated. And it, there's personality there. I mean, that's that's really what I like about it because you could do a podcast like this and say, okay, yeah, Spaceballs, uh, I liked it. I didn't like it. And um, Whitney Houston's uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody, that's eh, all right. And then just, you know, really just make it uh okay we're going through the calendar and telling you what's going on this particular year you guys really discuss it all the way all the way through and i love that i think the personality is a big part of it especially for us so like i grew up watching cisco and ebert like that was one of my mm-hmm. favorite shows growing up as a kid and yeah i love the critiques of the movies and i still read roger's stuff daily I, you go to his website the database it's all still there they mm-hmm. read reviews they hold up um, but a lot of the reason I like the show is I like the dynamic between, you know, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. They would fight. They yeah. would argue about uh, stuff. They would they would not necessarily always get along. Yeah. Um, and that was a dynamic I really loved. And that's what, we, that's what you know, ideally we do on the show is that Matt's a very different person than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times we will disagree on something and, you know, we'll, we'll bicker back and forth. And it's, yeah. it's fun where we're both comfortable enough to do that. Um uh, you know, there hasn't been like any explosive thing where we're not going to do the show anymore. Like we're able to fight on, <laughs> on Mike and still be able to like, you know, do the show the next yeah. day. And, you know, people aren't holding grudges. I don't think, at least not yet. Yeah. Maybe, maybe next show. <laughs> who knows? So which one's more active though? Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm probably more frantic you know, by nature. <laughs> um, you know, I'm from New York. So there's a little bit of that element or, you know, Matt's a New Hampshire guy. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's Matt's probably more even keeled um, about certain things, but Matt is, I think, more stubborn than I am. Yeah, uh, so that can have a different divide too. Where uh, you know, like, and and he has kind of an odd way of looking at the world. Like he, he uh, we were talking because sometimes just, just the episodes will branch off a bit, uh, and we were talking about Whitney Houston, and then going into a Boy Meets World discussion. Mm-hmm. And he had never heard of the show Boy Meets World. And I just found that to be like totally bizarre. Uh-huh. Uh, so like, you know, we'll have some of those tangents like that where 
um, if one of us discovers something that the other person, we definitely don't like gloss over it. We try to ignore it. And in my case, I like to exploit it to yeah. make fun of them. Right. No doubt. Yeah. So have you found, I mean, you're obviously going back to years before you were born and, uh, I think midnight. I'm, not. I'm 41. Okay. So, so you go right back to 69 then. Okay. Uh, 79. 79. Yeah. Yeah. Not that. Yeah. So yeah, I go all the way back till November of 79 is when I was born. Um, so that's as far back as we can go. Cause those were the rules in quantum leap. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it, it also honestly create a world where then we could talk about movies where people have a general knowledge. I mean, people know movies in the seventies, but if you try to find them on streaming, it was before VHS. So it's hard to find. Yeah. It's a lot harder to find movies before I was born just because of the nature of VCRs and cable. Right. Yeah, no doubt. So, I mean, you're really young looking 41. Damn it. Uh, I, don't, I don't have kids. Uh, so, okay. maybe maybe <laughs> so one of the things that uh, I like about meeting new comics is I always learn something. Did you go back and find uh, a movie that either you watched it and you were kind of iffy about it and you watched it again and you really loved it or found a movie that you'd never watched that really just blew your mind and you absolutely loved? Yeah, there were two that fall into that latter category. So uh, Moonstruck and uh-huh. The Fly, those movies both came out in the late 80s. I was a little kid, you know, I was eight, nine years old. Uh-huh. Uh, and I might have, saw, like I saw The Fly on cable on HBO, but it didn't really resonate, you know. And then when I watched it as a 41-year-old, I was like, whoa, this is a this is a really good movie. This is There's a lot going on. It's not just a horror movie with great performances by Goldblum and Davis. Uh-huh. This is a really good movie. Um, that talks about aging and dying and, and maybe terminal illness and might even have some like AIDS parallels there. There's yeah. a lot of like different layers to that movie because Cronenberg, the director, is phenomenal. Yeah. But that movie has a lot going on. Um, and Moonstruck, I just, I, I had never seen it. Um, and I was Cher and Nicolas Cage and there's some fun performances. And that was a movie that was better than I thought. Yeah. On the flip side, like we did 12 Monkeys and uh, The Prestige. Those are both movies that I love the first time I saw them. But once you kind of know the hook, when you see them in multiple viewings, it doesn't quite have the same punch. So I didn't mm. quite enjoy those as much as I had the first time I've seen them. Yeah, I've I've gone through that a little bit myself. How about music? Did you get did you find any music that you had either passed over or you didn't like when you were younger? Yeah, like Phil Collins. Um, which is funny because Phil Collins has this like rep now of kind of being kind of corny, like in the air tonight and some of this stuff. But I, we went through that, um, uh, one of his albums in, in the mid eighties, uh, I think it was his third solo album. And it was much better than I thought. I still listen. It's like in my playlist now. And uh-huh. I wouldn't have discovered if we hadn't done this show. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I was hoping when we started the show was I would find newer music or newer movies that I hadn't just had the time to watch. Right. Um, most of the movies I will say we've had are movies that I've been familiar with. But uh, when we have those like uncovered gems, that's like, those are like my favorite weeks. Yeah. So when you're watching a really shitty movie that you just absolutely hate, does it feel like homework? Oh, it's just brutal. <laughs> oh. So I'll try to capture that anger like in a bottle and I try to bring it on. Like we did, um, like Battlefield Earth was terrible. Uh-huh. Um, what's a movie we just did recently? Oh, the Indiana Jones we just did. Uh, okay. With the, with, the, with the Crystal Skull. The uh-huh. last one. Yeah. When, when he's like 68. It is so horrible. I was so pissed off. I was, because it, it, it ruins, it, I mean, it kind of ruins Indy in a way. You can't uh-huh. watch those movies quite the same way. I mean, you can still enjoy Temple of the Doom. It's still a great movie. Raiders of the Lost Ark is still great. But there's an element where you kind of still remember like him being in the refrigerator or Shia LaBeouf being annoying. And you're like, wait a second, they made that movie. That movie's yeah. horrible. 
Um, so yeah, there's things that uh, yeah, you know, there's there's some movies that are just brutal. Because ha- here are the rules of what we go by is that we'll pick a week at random. Right. My wife has a date generator, and she picks a week, and we do that week. And whatever movie was number one, we have to do. Uh-huh. And then we can do um, in the top ten. Uh, I can pick two movies in the top ten because we do three shows a week. Yeah, two are on our regular, and one's on our Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, uh, the number one movie I have to do. So one week it was Alvin and the Chipmunks with Jason Lee. Uh-huh. That movie was horrible. It was <laughs> awful. It was so bad. And like I'm sitting there, and you're like, you're wondering, like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I even you know doing this podcast? <laughs> this is like, it's a war crime. This isn't a movie. It was terrible. <laughs> One of the things I really like, and I'm getting it right here, is your passion. I mean, you guys went into this podcast, Quantum Week, doing it right. And I know you guys must have put some planning into it. And, hey, we're going to make sure we do this right. And I really appreciate that because, I mean, I'm sure you listen to podcasts, and not all of them are that great. You guys really just jumped off the phone at me, and I was just like, holy cow, this is the best thing ever. We try to have fun. Uh, I, so I like your podcast a lot. I want to talk a little comedy with you. I'm a, I'm a comedy nerd myself. Okay. Um, my favorite comedy room I've ever been to uh, is the Comedy Cellar in New York. Oh, uh, see, I've never been. A, I oh, haven't gotten you got to go. Yeah. You got to go. I cannot uh, say enough good stuff. So I uh, I was at the cellar one night. I would go. I was living in New York between 2012 and 2016. Mm. Uh, and how the cellar works is a showcase, um, which your audience probably knows. It's uh, They'll have like, you know, eight or 10 comics each do about 10 minutes each. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, but they'll have pop in guests. So they'll have a list and then, but it, you know, surprise guests pop in all the time. Like Jim Norton was there every time I went, uh-huh. Colin Quinn would pop in a bunch. So one day I'm sitting there and, um, uh, the, the kid comes up and he was, you could tell he was looked like he had just like been, uh, seen a murder or something. He's white, <laughs> the ghost, the host. He's like, we have a very special guest. It's Jerry Seinfeld. Oh. And I am a huge Seinfeld guy. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I almost pissed myself. And he walked by. And how the cellar is, you got you know, you know, comedy rooms, they're all so small. Yeah. And the cellar is tiny. I mean, if you've seen episodes of Louie, you know how small yeah. it is in there. Mm. And uh, he walks by and he does his set. I, I'm not a big starstruck guy. I was completely starstruck. Yeah. Uh, and he, I don't remember like two-thirds of his jokes. And as he's leaving he has to like basically go like right in front of you and like walk by uh-huh. uh, cause it's such a small space. And I go, Jerry, Jerry, thank you so much. He goes, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the greatest moment of my life. I Jerry thanked me after a set. It was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> But I, I love comedy. I love I love your. Where are you out of Scott? I'm actually in northern Indiana. I'm almost uh, okay. to the Michigan line, so Midwest boy. Very cool. Yeah. Um. I don't know. What, I I'm not familiar with that country part of the country really at all. I'm, I'm a totally East Coast guy. Yeah. Um. But uh, I hope you guys have some good comedy rooms there. Yeah. Yeah. We we got some. Up. We're close to Chicago, so they've got great okay. rooms there. Oh, they have great. Yeah. I'm yeah. dying to go to Chicago. Yeah. I'm an improv guy too, so I oh love, cool. I love all that. Yeah. Cool. As far as Quantum Week goes, how can people find you on the interwebs and on all the apps? Yeah, you, we're pretty much anywhere you uh, you know download uh, the Scott's podcast, you can download ours. It's Quantum Week. Uh, we have a website, quantum-week.com, and we have a Patreon as well. That's really if you're looking for kind of like a third show a week. So if you listen, you're a big fan. We do have almost 100 shows. Or we're doing our 100th show next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's plenty of content right there. But if you need more, you can go to Patreon, of course. But, uh, yeah, we have – and you can kind of jump around. Like if you're new, you're like, I'm not really – I don't really know the movies they're doing this week or 
I don't want to start at episode one. Mm-hmm. You can pretty much pop in and out anywhere and get an idea for what we're doing. And then, yeah. um, you know, it, it, we do tell personal stories in yeah. uh, in the, each episode, but those stories are related to that week. So you can really kind of jump around just like we're doing. So if you yeah. see a movie you're really passionate about, I would recommend starting there. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting invested in your lives because you do the personal stuff. So, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm your neighbor and I know what's going on. So that's pretty cool. That's, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's nice to know that there's uh you know, thousands and thousands of strangers that know about my past. That's not creepy at all. Scott. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I get the same thing. People act like they know exactly. me. So, yeah. You're right. Yeah. I know. Right. It's weird. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's been a pleasure. And I said, I genuinely enjoy your show. I'm a big comedy guy, and uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff with the stand-up is Great. fantastic. Great. I appreciate that. So, folks, make sure you check out Quantum Week. Just uh, type out Quantum Week in the podcast app. It does come up very easily. Some podcasts I like don't come up very easily, but it's right there. Subscribe and listen to a couple episodes of movies that you know and you like and get their take on it, and then just start listening because – all of them are great. Uh, you guys put in a lot of great effort, and it is just a fantastic show. Thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being on. Hey, BTB buddies, I found another great podcast for you. It's called Standby for Places. Take old-time radio shows and replace the Jack Benny show with some of the greatest plays of all time, and you get Standby for Places. The team at Standby for Places doesn't just get regular people like me to read these plays. They have professional actors and directors perform the play like it would be performed on stage. You can tell that everyone involved really cares about the production of every play performed for Standby for Places. I've listened to A Christmas Carol, and I'm getting ready to cue up the importance of being earnest. I think of Standby for Places as not so much a podcast, but more like Broadway for your earbuds. I'm a podcast aficionado, and I can say I've never heard anything with the production value of Standby for Places. Check this out if you've never been able to see great plays by playwrights like Oscar Wilde, or if you'd like to revisit them while doing your yoga session. Standby for Places is a great podcast to help you embrace the beauty of creativity and can be found on all the podcast apps. You know what I'm going to say here? It's a good one. My guest today is Colin Williams. He is a nationally touring, touring comedian and a TEDx-selected speaker on comedy. His TED Talk, How Joking About Suicide Can Save Someone's Life, has been seen by thousands of viewers. And Colin is also a Niantic lead live broadcaster. Uh, think Pokemon. So um, that's something I want to get into a little bit. But uh, uh, let's bring him out now. It is Colin Williams. Hey, Colin, how are you? Hello, everyone. Good to talk to you today. Good to be here. Hopefully, we should be able to discuss some of the some of the big secrets about mental health and comedy that really hasn't been discussed anywhere else. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. I, I've actually had a couple interviews that uh, went down that road, and uh, it's definitely you know and I know because we're in the business that uh, everybody who does comedy has something wrong with them and uh (laughs) and uh it it doesn't matter what it is a a lot of it's depression but uh there's other things too and uh a lot of people a lot of people talk to it like one-on-one but no it never gets to be a big conversation so this is great to talk about that let's get into this uh first of all where are you from so I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and then I ended up moving out and starting comedy in Salt Lake City, Utah, which I think we all know when you think comedy, you think Salt Lake City, Utah. I do. 
I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's funny is that used to be a joke, but now dry bar comedy tapes in Provo, Utah. So yeah. Provo, Utah has become this weird hub of comedy you would not expect whatsoever. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so you, you've got your home there in Utah. Let's talk about your start in stand-up. I uh, did a little reading, and I know you started young, but let's talk about that first time you did stand-up. Why did you do it, and how did it go for you? I wanted to impress a girl. Uh-huh. Um, as, as I think that's most men's motivations for almost anything. Yeah. That's why we do half of our things. We're like, Ooh, there's a hot chick. Yep. So I, I started out in high school, <laughs> not planning on doing stand up. And my drama teacher had a little thing she called comedy Friday, uh, where she'd play like Disney movies with mm-hmm. like the Incredibles, like comedy stuff. And at the beginning she said, you know, if anyone wants to do, uh, tell some jokes, then, you know, you can come up and tell some jokes. And I had just watched some, uh, some stand-up the night before on Comedy Central. Some t- uh, it was Tom Cotter specifically, yeah. and so I told some some jokes. And as a reference for anyone who doesn't, for some reason, know you do not tell other comedians jokes on stage. Yeah. Uh, to clarify, <laughs> that never happened professionally. It's kind of this weird uh, little little uh, exception where yeah. when you're like a high schooler, like when you're a kid in school, like you know, there's I think Sinbad said that he used to go up and, and parrot uh, Bill Cosby's material. That that's yeah. a, that's the thing that that's a statement that ages well. Sinbad and Bill Cosby, you know, right? Uh, that's a great <laughs> statement. But uh, so I I told some jokes and then I I would come back um, every two weeks and I would memorize a new ninety minutes of material. Uh-huh. And I would I would do uh I would do entire every two weeks I would come back and I would do an hour and a half of of a of different comedy material and so it gave me a chance to without actually going to even open mics or without going there it gave me a chance to have a lot of time performing on stage uh with actually good material so i could learn the performing part mm-hmm. and then i would start writing my own jokes and i would slip them in there and so by the time i actually hit an open mic when i was 17 i'd already had hours on stage i'd already written material that had been tested mm-hmm. and so i was lucky enough that after it was uh, three or four open mics i was doing book shows at the local club that's really cool now let's talk about memorizing an hour and a half of comedy did you i and this isn't uh this isn't something i normally get into but uh, memorization is hard for me because i'm a little add as well um so did you have any i mean you were young obviously your brain's a little bit more malleable when you're young yeah my brain does not work now yeah But thinking about the memorization, did you have a technique or anything that allowed you to do that? Or did you just read it a million times? It was, I would, I would be watching over and over again. I would take notes. So I would have basically, it was a set list Mm -hmm. and and I would make a note of whatever sparked the memory of that comic. So, I mean, you, you can't, um, unless you have some sort of magical rain man comedy esque thing where you can just memorize 90 minutes every two weeks, you do have to have some sort of little liner notes. Mm -hmm. Um, I obviously flubbed up a lot. But the nice thing is it's a high school class, so there's like really not – there's both pressure because it's the people you know that can mm. then mock you the rest of your yeah. week if you mess up. It's like yeah. – it's basically like, it's like playing a cruise ship right. where you're like, oh, man, if I screw up, then I have to see these people yeah. all day. <laughs> but, you know, it's also more forgiving because it's there's, there's no ticket price. Uh, most of the people – really just wanted to be like making out with their girlfriends in the back of class and didn't want to pay attention. Anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Liner notes are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And no just doubt. rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. Uh, and it was, it's nice to uh, actually, I don't know if you had LPs or not, but if you, ha- if, if you actually had the album, I'm not that that's old. nice. Okay. Not I didn't think so. <laughs> I thought black didn't crack. Apparently I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a long past year. It's aged. 
everyone. Yeah, it sure has. It sure has. I'm only 25. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. looking good. I'm, I'm 12. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your influences. Obviously, you must have liked stand up comedy. Who were some of your early influences? Um, one of the things I always find with people's influences, it's weird how it doesn't actually translate into their work. So Mitch Hedberg, yeah. Yeah. I think, is, is one of the most brilliant comics that, that we've been able to see in the past hundred years, mm. um, hands down. And I have nothing like his style in my ultimate work. I want to become like Mitch. I want to be able to perform like Mitch and I'm not at all that person. Yeah. Um, the person who ended up being the biggest influence and who is one of the nicest guys you have a chance to meet him is Christopher Titus. He yeah. is the master of writing a fantastically deep story with a through line and, and writing a lot of great content off of subjects that, you know, I think for our generation, he's he's the master. I think the last person that was that good was like Richard Pryor mm. of taking something that was this dark, troubled thing. And obviously Pryor is going to be a little better than Titus. I'm not saying uh, Titus is better than Pryor, but, you know, we each generation has that person. Right. And I think Titus owned that. Um, Mike Birbiglia is another fantastic person. He mm. didn't, His later work is a better influence on my recent work. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, Bur the Birbigs. I, I absolutely love his later stuff. And uh Christopher Titus is extremely underrated and uh, mm -hmm. it's funny how many comics I talk to that he is one of their influences and, but yet, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, he had his show and stuff like that, but it just doesn't, yeah. it, it doesn't translate to him being like uh, uh, that well known and he probably should be. Yeah, you talk to a lot of people these days, and they, they they don't necessarily know who he is, and they they should. Yeah. Um, and I would say his work, if if you haven't studied Christopher Titus's work, I feel like Norman Rockwell's Bleeding and Love Is Evil is the perfect kind of starter compendium of how to write a great story with a through line and have a story travel across shows uh -huh. and connect back. Yeah. But if you have a chance to see him live, he's probably one of the other great examples of how to deal with your audience um, post show. Uh -huh. He will stick around for hours. And he will sell a ton of merch because of it, but he will also, he will stay there. I've seen him stay three hours after a show to talk to people. Mm. And most comics, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I, I want to, let's, let's leave. But what, are, what else are you doing? Yeah. What else are you doing that night? Yeah. You get, would you rather <laughs> hang out with the, the comedy club waitstaff, which are fantastic people? Right. But, uh, you know, th those fans, that loyalty is going to help you long-term. Yeah. Or go to your room and play Xbox or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or other things that you do at a hotel alone at nighttime. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned Norman Rockwell because I was just uh, uh, reading about, you know, when you talk about race and Norman Rockwell, he's like the last person you would expect to be uh, – painting about race and race relations mm -hmm. and yet his painting um with the n-word on it was outside of president obama's uh door and well, you uh, know i wonder where you learned that fact from <laughs> there's probably you know someone should have that in like a an official like talk on ted.com they should mention they that should. <laughs> fact and uh the ted talk is on the ted talk is on uh ted ted.com and i'm going to put a lot of links to that up uh, when we put the podcast i've already shared it a million times but i'm going to put that out but uh i wondered if you were going to catch that or not obviously since it's your talk you did <laughs> I, the amount of times i rewrote those drafts there's no way i'm going to miss anything yeah um, and that talk if you go on ted.com and type in colin williams two l's on the name it'll it'll pop it right up 
Um, yeah, and and that's yeah. Norman Rockwell was um, just to jump off from that. I think was a, is a great example of you know we have people like Christopher Titus that discuss these things that commonly aren't the topics you're supposed to talk about. Mm-hmm. Norman Rockwell was covering something you wouldn't expect him to talk about, but the impact you can do um, of, of these things that are supposedly taboo topics can actually be very positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did it at a time when white people should have been doing it. And, and, and obviously a time, this is a time where white people should still be doing it, but, uh, they kind of need to step back and, um, just do what we're told right now. But, uh, the, the, uh, some good good listening sessions. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I, it's, it's really neat that he did that. And, uh, when you, uh, when you brought that up, I actually read into it a little bit more because I thought that was a pretty cool fact that I didn't know. So that was, that was good. Um, one of the things I like to ask everybody, because I am, I'm a voracious consumer of media, usually reading. I read more than anything, and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. But um, I always like to ask people, are you reading, listening to music, listening to any podcasts, anything that is really um, speaking to you and giving you new ideas or making you feel better about the world? Is there anything out there that's just really hitting you? I think the only thing that makes me feel better about my world is uh, my dog and prescription ketamine right now. Uh, this is a rough <laughs> for people watching this later on. Remember that week there was like an insurrection at the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, imagine being a brown person in America that yeah. week. That's who I am. So, you know, the dog and ketamine. But uh, I, I always love I, learning. Same same as you. It seems mm. like there's a real passion for learning. And so I usually I'm not a big fan of chatting podcasts. So one of the things I want to cover throughout this whole podcast is, is actually dropping knowledge that you haven't heard before. I love chatting with people, but if I can tell you something that you've never heard before, and I guarantee you there's going to be some numbers you have not heard that you'll, that you'll want to know if you, if you're a comedy nerd. Uh Um, But uh, so there's, uh, I've been learning a lot about philosophy from philosophize this bill. Nye has a podcast and he is a fantastic scientific communicator, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in our time right now, scientific education, I think is important. So there's a a podcast called uh, skeptoid, that debunks a lot of crazy conspiracy theories with bibliographical information. Cause I love a good reference. Yeah, I'm able no to doubt. back up what you say. <laughs> uh, yeah. And there's nothing like someone being like, this is a thing. And you're like, where's your proof? And they're like, I heard it from a meme. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I just posted the, the same parents that got angry at us for quoting Wikipedia uh-huh. are now like sharing fo- clearly Photoshop memes. It's yeah. just blatant fact. Yeah. So I'm like, cite, cite your sources, cite like an actual source. I'm not going to, yeah. I, I love a good, you know, uh, angry baby meme. Yeah. But you know, where's the, where's the research? Where's the data? Yeah. It? You know, it's funny. You mentioned, uh, actually, uh, not wanting a chatty podcast because I, I'm a, I'm a very impulsive person and I had done another podcast for about five years and I got serious about stand up about a year ago and I decided I wanted to do this podcast, but I started listening to all the other comedy interview type podcasts and I took out what I liked and what I didn't like. And the thing that I didn't like that was top of the list was small talk. And, uh, (laughs) I, there's some hour long podcast that it takes 15 minutes for him to get to the meat of the podcast. And that's one thing you won't have to worry about for me, for me, because I just get right to it. How is the weather right now? Yeah. I think that's what we all want to know. You know, people listening years from now, we want to know what's, how is your clouds? How yeah. are they looking today? Yeah. Is it, are they cumulus? 
Well, and then 15 minutes of inside jokes. Who, 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 who wants to listen to that? I don't know. <laughs> Let's talk top three. Uh, top three yeah. comedy album or special. What, what would you say are, are your favorites? So Norman Rockwell's Bleeding, hands down. Watch that one from Christopher Titus. Mm. Um, if if you have to uh, pick just one, that is it. Mm. Uh, and then second after that, Love is Evil. Those Just watch those two in a row. And then probably if I just kind of want to kick back and not have, and have one of those just like really fun, just like not actually thinking about things, mm. uh, but still great comedy. Uh, Tommy Jonagan is a <laughs> yeah. comic most people don't know. But Tommy Jonagan, stand-up one, two, or three, just they're fantastic. Yeah. He's one of the best comics that you have ne- that you probably have never heard of unless you're a comedy nerd. Yeah. You know, it's funny. A lot of comics, again, they talk about him as being one of the cool guys. And he's, uh, he's the best. Yeah. And everybody says, you know, one of the nicest guys, really fantastic dude. Colin, do you have anything uh, going on in these troubled times uh, that you want to plug? You know, during during COVID, not so much uh, live. If you check out, uh, you know, Comic Colin, C-O-M-I-C-C-O-L-L-I-N, I will usually update when I have a new project going on there. I'm going to be working on some TV, uh, some YouTube TV stuff with uh, another person and launching a couple series myself. But for some reason, it's hard to coordinate and get a bunch of people in a small room studio right yeah. at the moment. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're a little backlogged. Right, that. right. But that's going to be coming soon. Okay, great. I was going to reference you look like a great, like a, like a great daddy in the gay community. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gay. I just wanted to give you that compliment. Yeah. I want you to know that I feel like if we were both in the gay community, I'd be like, you'd be my daddy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that actually is a compliment. I, uh, I'm, I'm a, a big advocate. So, uh, it's that, that's a compliment. And one of the jokes I do is actually, um, so my wife and I have been together for 37 years, and I, I oh say, you know, how do you do that? And I said, uh, well, I'm not into sports. I don't care about sports. I don't care about cars. I don't care about hunting or fishing. What I really like to do is get in bed with my boo and watch Project Runway. So now I talk about reruns of Project Runway and because Tim Gunn's the only one that I like from that show. So I talk about that, and then I say, so how do you stay stay together for so long? Well, basically, I'm her gay roommate, so it just works. So <laughs> That's one way to do it. I was, I was asking some comics for advice because I had my first long-term relationship on the road. I was like, how do you um, – Kermit Apio had the best answer because I was like, how do you handle being away from someone that you love that long? Because I was gone like five, six weeks, mm-hmm. and his response was, my wife says the reason I'm gone is probably why we're still together. Yeah, this it's funny. This pandemic really tested us because we've been empty nesters for quite a while, but we've we've always kind of done our own thing, uh, which allows for us to get some separation. And we've been right on top of each other, and the and we're doing pretty good. Uh, we're disagreeing on some TV. She doesn't like Snowpiercer, and I do. So you know, what do you do? <laughs> That's good because a lot of a lot of people are quickly finding right now that their conflict resolution skills. Uh, aren't that great. And yeah. that's uh, just diving into the kind of the mental health thing. One of the things um, that we ignore, we ignore how to be good people to other people and yeah. to ourselves so much. I think we're kind of finding um, internally right now during this pandemic, 
whether you can communicate effectively, whether or not you can um, solve problems effectively. You're mm. learning a lot about your own mental health and how you deal with stress. A lot of people haven't had this level of stress before. Right. And so it's been interesting to see people kind of get this new understanding as someone who's had massive depression, all these issues for a long time. Right. Uh, you know, when people would ask me, how are you doing at the beginning of the pandemic? I'm like, oh, I'm fine. You guys know how I feel all the time now. This yeah. is, yeah. yeah, welcome to my world. Yeah. And it's very easy to get caught up in the inward focus to the point where you don't care what anybody else feels because you're just so focused on your own problems. And that's such a good analogy that they feel like we feel all the time. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, it, obviously this exasperates it, uh, quite, quite a bit, but, uh, mm -hmm. the, fact that uh people are starting to get understand it because my wife never understood my depression because i have everything to be happy about and yet i'm depressed and uh she she's getting it now um because i knew i knew saturday that she was not feeling it and i said okay let's uh we're, we live by lake michigan uh and i said let's go walk the beach so we went and watched walk the beach for a couple hours and then she was better so you know it it that's one thing having it you can recognize it too and uh yeah. if you're not so inwardly focused but yeah um so I think that's, yeah mm -hmm. i wanted to i wanted to get into your background because you know obviously between the uh, the ted talk and suicide note uh i mean there's a lot to unwrap there and you started doing the the stand-up when you were 17 but you had had uh I mean, you'd had it pretty rough all the way up until then. And uh, so can, you know, in a nutshell, can you tell me where you got to the point of, first of all, wanting the first time you tried suicide? So for, for those that aren't aware, when you reference a suicide note, I have a, I have a show that I literally took my, um, my suicide note and I decided to turn it into a show. And as a comedian, naturally, when you're when you're writing, you kind of tend to put jokes and things. So I was literally I was in a psych ward. I was sitting in a psych ward. I had seven days to myself because you know psych ward, and I was writing out the suicide note. And but you're still you're putting jokes in it because you know you're like eh, that's that's funny. And yeah. you write it down in the suicide note. And I was like, well, I'm either going to kill myself or this will turn into a show. Um, and so I ended up uh, I ended up both. I went trying to do both. I ended up uh, having I've had uh, five more suicide attempts past that, and then I also have a show now that's written completely based off of that suicide note, explaining to people why I want to kill myself. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the essence of the show, actually. It's kind of explaining well, how would someone reach that point? Because mm -hmm. up until now, a lot of people haven't had that experience with depression or anxiety. They can't relate. Um, even for those that can relate, it's sometimes nice for them to have an empathetic ear and to be able to see someone else going through something um, maybe a little different, but still those that same path that led them there. Mm -hmm. And to help people understand that it's not, it's not a single... Uh, job loss. It's not a single breakup. It's not even a single thing that would make a white chick can't even uh, uh -huh. that, that leads to it. It's this sustained <laughs> river of shit that eventually overflows long enough. It breaks the dam called, uh, it breaks the dam and destroys the village below called hope. Uh -huh. So for me, it was a, it was a long path. Um, I was raised, uh, I was raised in, in a, in a cult. Uh, so I was raised Jehovah's witness. You can debate the cult status of that. Most people outside the religion will agree. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, physically, sexually, emotionally abused. Um, I came from, uh, you know, the, the least, the least bad part is that uh, my parents were divorced. That's mm -hmm. like just the new normal thing right now. Um, but so, <laughs> so I grew up in this very hectic area 
where everything was, I was cut off from the outside world, from religion. Um, I had, you know, this entire horrible family home life that kind of built these levels of depression. And then I started learning to be able to use comedy, kind of battle that Mm -hmm. in some ways in those high school years and as a way to be able to have a creative outlet. But you uh, learning to be effective at communicating depression while being funny is very tricky. Mm -hmm. And to to discuss trauma is very tricky. It's not something that you can do quickly. Um, And sometimes you're not ready to open up yet. Some people aren't ready to discuss those things. And especially with where I was at with comedy in Salt Lake City, it's very much um, all the shows need to be PG-13 at the most. Mm. Like you can't drop an F-bomb at all. Yeah. And so I'm glad that I started in an area that, that forced me to learn how to write and to perform and to do things clean. But ultimately it took a little longer. I had to move out of state. I had to start pursuing my own things. And I had to eventually have this mental breakdown uh, post first suicide attempt where I was just sitting in a psych ward and I was like, I am going to let the world burn. Mm-hmm. I don't care if everyone knows these things anymore. Cause I might be dead. Who cares? I was holding on to all these secrets for other people. And I was like, I don't, I don't give a shit. Right. Like I'm, I'm going to be dead maybe. Mm-hmm. And it was because of letting all that go that I actually found that I've been carrying kind of the weight of everyone else on my shoulders and letting that out there uh, ended up being really good and therapeutic for me in, mm-hmm. in the form of a show. Nonetheless. Now, going through the physical, mental, sexual abuse that you went through. Let's take that out of the equation. Let's say you were just a regular old Jehovah's witness that uh, didn't go through that. You were, you were a Midwest version. And, um, and let's say that uh, everything else was the same. Do you think you'd still suffer from depression? Um, because of what happened with me. So I was kicked out. Mm. because I had premarital sex. Uh, mm. I always like to say, uh, you know, we had a little disagreement on how many people I was supposed to have premarital sex with. Their <laughs> number was zero. Mine was a little higher than that. Yeah. Uh, I was, well, in my, Jesus baptized people in water. I wanted to get my dick wet. It felt like a holy act to me. And so one of those things is, is you're, when you're kicked out, um, the entire structure of the religion is you're not supposed to have any outside contact, mm-hmm. unnecessary outside contact. You're not supposed to have any friends that aren't inside the church, all of those things. And once you're kicked out, if you're if you're kicked out, your friends are no longer allowed to contact you. Mm-hmm. So you can't talk to them or they will get kicked out as well. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like a uh, fight club. Yeah, it's like it's like fight church. And the first rule of fight church <laughs> is uh, <clears throat> is don't have premarital sex. That's the one I broke. Uh, and the second one is. Don't talk to people who are kicked out of fight church. You get kicked out too. (laughs) There would have naturally been a depression there. And you have to basically restart your entire life over. Either you try to get back in or um, by repenting and doing all these things. And I tried that route. Mm -hmm. Didn't work for me um, because I love science. Um, I actually didn't get back into the church because I learned um, that uh, I I was sitting in a meeting with three, this panel of deacons that decides if you get to go back in. Mm And they're like, okay, well, what have you done? Because you can't like masturbate for ninety days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the it's the worst TLC show ever that you could have. No oh. masturbation ninety days. <laughs> and I was sitting there with these guys, and they're like, okay, so how have you learned? How have you figured out? You know, how to not masturbate? And I was like, oh, okay. So I realized that whenever I have to pee, like my bladder presses on my prostate, 
And if I just go use the restroom, like 90% of the time, I'm not horny anymore. <laughs> but they weren't, look, they were, they were looking for like the, the religious answer. So like, uh-huh. okay, but how has Jesus helped you with it? I'm like, no, no, I found something better than Jesus using the restroom. <laughs> and that was it. And I didn't get in because I was like, no, I just go pee. Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> so I, 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 you end up having to restart your life. And I was having a discussion with my partner, um, a couple nights ago, because she was watching all these serial killer shows, and she's like, I noticed that there's a statistically high number of Jehovah's Witnesses that end up being serial killers, like former. I'm like, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. When you look at a psychological perspective of the things that we define as uh, antisocial personality disorder, which is often mistaken for psychopathy, um, psychopathy is something you're born with. Mm. Sociopathy is a thing that can be developed by environment. So antisocial personality disorder and sociopathy the the things that you are encouraged to do in the religion so you're supposed to be going out and recruiting people so you have to go and have this nice kind of artificial um charm mm. where you're going out and recruiting people but at the same point in time you're not supposed to associate with anyone that isn't so you end up having this anti-social aspect that comes into play and you end up kind of huddling together mm. you're also having to learn to rationalize things that are irrational as most religions do mm. but you know especially when when you're stuck in in that kind of cult mindset. You have to rationalize it. So all of these things that lead to um, specific uh, characteristics of these mental illnesses um, that we have uh, is is kind of displayed in the religion. Same sort of thing. They don't believe in hell. So mm-hmm. the ultimate punishment you can have is just dying. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to try to execute vengeance on someone, if you have this anger and you have these uh, all these antisocial things that have been built up from uh, from the, these religious aspects. And then you want to exercise vengeance. You can't just be like, well, this person's going to go and burn in hell forever. Right. You're like, well, I guess I got to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're crazy, you know, that's mm-hmm. not the usual, that's not the traditional thing. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to be going down that path mm-hmm. and uh, you have enough people in the world that were or are Jehovah's Witness, um, rough estimates, probably around 30 million. Their exact count is 8 million, but they don't count people who aren't active. If they kick you out, you're not there. If you're not active. Uh, once every six months, they don't count you. So there's probably about 30 million people, all with this antisocial aspects that have been built into their brain cognitive structure. Mm. And they're they're just kind of this um, giant ball of potential, mm. <laughs> uh, potential um, uh, psychosis. Mm. So let's get back to the question. Do you think that you would... Um if all that hadn't been fed into you, do you think you'd still suffer from depression? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, if I had not gone back into the religion, even if I had gone back in, I would have had some depression, Mm. not as much. Mm. Um, but it would have been, there's, there's also things on a genetic level. There's a history of mental illness in my family. Mm. My uncle is an assassin who kills people illegally for a living. So like, there's not a lot of stability in there, Mm. but you add on environmental factors in it and it definitely goes worse. Mm. Let's talk about, okay, you're kicked out of the church and at what age was that? That was 18. 18. So you'd, you'd, you'd kind of dipped into the comedy and that probably got you horny. And then, uh, and <laughs> oh, I was a teenage boy. I didn't need comedy. Yeah. To get, no, <laughs> it, no one watches a Gilbert Godfrey special and gets horny. That's <laughs> no, not how it yeah, that's true. <laughs> so it, it happened to coincide. So I was kicked out, uh, April, uh, April 1st, April 1st, 2008. Okay. And my very first book show 
was with Robert Mack at Wise Guys Comedy Club Ogden, February 22nd, 2008. Mm-hmm. So I had nothing else in my life because I just lost everyone that I that I knew. Mm-hmm. And so I had nothing else except for, oh, what am I going to do on my weekends? If mm-hmm. I'm not performing, I'm going to be at the club hanging out. And then I, they like me well enough that like uh, I did 150 shows the first year because I would show up and I'd just be there to hang out. And the club manager would be like, hey, I can text the owner and see if I can get you a spot. Because mm-hmm. she was she was great. She was uh, wonderful. I love Gail to death. She was like my comedy mom. Mm-hmm. So it that was the way that comedy ended up being catalysted by the fact that I I um, was kicked out, mm-hmm. and I also didn't have uh, I am able to tour. You can't mm-hmm. tour in the religion. Um, you wouldn't be able to do that. You got to focus on God a lot. So if I would have gone back in, no touring. Mm-hmm. She kills comedy real quick. So. Um... When you get into comedy, you kind of build a new family, especially if you stay in a certain region. Did you, uh, did that happen with you? Yes. Uh, my first three years I was in Salt Lake city and there, there was a fantastic group of guys at that point in time, uh, in, in the, in the club scene, Mm. um, who are still, you know, friendly friends to, to this day, 13 years later. Um, in fact, the reason I was able to get booked soon is because one specific comic, I had gone to a few open mics. He'd only see me at one. Literally, he saw me at the uh, third open mic I'd ever done. Mm-hmm. And he happened to be a do. He was hosting a show at the the club, and, and I walked up and I was congratulating him. I said afterwards, and he's like, "Why aren't you up there?" And I was like, "I don't even know how to how that happens." And he's like, "Here's the email. Tell tell Keith that I recommended you." Mm-hmm. And so it was thanks to Spencer King doing that, that I was actually able to skip, you know, years of open mics. Mm-hmm. And so there were some fantastic people like that, that there is that family uh, comedy. Comedy can be uh, very clicky mm-hmm. and very yeah. toxic. I feel like that's even happening worse these days. Yeah. Uh, just like everything else with social media, it's gotten mm-hmm. even more uh, fragmented, but right. there you can also find people who understand you because they, they, you have the same mindset. You can say screwed up, messed up things to each other. You guys understand mental health, um, even if you're not good at communicating it. Mm-hmm. They understand depression the same way you do. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, you you've got this family and you're and they are behind you in doing your comedy. Your comedy when you started, did you talk about depression? Did you talk about what you had gone through, or did you go the normal route? of one-liners and Mr. X and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was a shitty comic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I, I didn't, I didn't know how to approach the, the mental health stuff correctly. So mm-hmm. I tried a little bit of it and it didn't work because it is a very delicate balancing act. I, it's hard. I had to spend yeah. uh, the suicide note show. I was spending 10 hours a day for an entire year mm. writing it, re- rehearsing it, um, practicing it, rewriting it 10 mm. hours a day, almost every single day. That's mm. how long it took. And I didn't have that time back then. So it was, you know, it was, there's a few jokes I still um, have here and there today and actually are in the show. But for the most part, whenever I would try something along where I wanted to go, it would either go too dark and not be funny, or especially where I was, where I was at in Salt Lake City area, it was, you know, too dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember I, I got pulled off, uh, pulled aside by the club uh, manager one time after a show and I'd called myself a pussy yeah. and she's like, yeah, you can't, you can't <laughs> say that. Um <laughs> 
on on stage and i was like okay i guess i'll not do that one so that's kind of the <laughs> level where i had to work with them and it made it great because i learned to write in those restrictions mm-hmm. and that's a good skill to have and i can still do a clean i've i did a fundraiser for the boy scouts that was held inside of a mormon ward building uh-huh. <laughs> so i can do that show yeah i want to die afterwards yeah i want to <laughs> die so much because i'm not i'm not myself i'm chuckles the joke clown yeah but you know, it, it gave me those restrictions. So it took a while to be able to reach there. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people say it takes about 10 years till you find your voice in comedy. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was writing, um, I was writing suicide note when I was, uh, nine years in. And okay. I think that's really the, that bridging point yeah. where I kind of realized how to take all the things I wanted to do and, and turn them into who I am. And I look back and I can see little bits where there's little tiny, uh, little tiny, like one of the jokes I, uh, I, I, my original set jokes is I was born December 26th, Canada's Boxing Day. I think that explains that my dad hit me so much as a kid, um, which it's a, and I always, I knew it wasn't going to get a laugh. So mm-hmm. I was like, that's okay, you guys, that's just a tester joke to see how dark we can go. By the yeah. way, you failed. You got to get on board here. Yeah. Um, my dad didn't actually hit me. My dad loved me. He hit my mother. Um, <laughs> so like I had that joke in there, but I could never, you can't, it's hard to, even even the normal audience, I tour two different shows. I have mm. Suicide Note show, and then I have the club show mm. that are drastically different right. um, shows. So you've got this support group, and you're starting to perform comedy. Did you talk to any of these people about what you had been through and the fact that you were suffering from, from some pretty major depression? Ooh, no. Okay. No, that's... Um, <clears throat> And that's, I always encourage people, you don't have to talk about things till you're ready. But if you can, mm. the benefit from it, because like I said, I'd, when, when I finally had the suicide note show, and when I kind of, when I first released the very first suicide note, um, the actual note itself, I felt better because I had been holding on to all these secrets for other people. Mm-hmm. So like for, for reference, uh, I was molested for six years as a kid. Mm. I didn't really talk about it. Um, I especially didn't talk about who, what, all of, all those pieces. So, and that wasn't benefiting me. I was holding on to someone else's secret. It was, it was my secret in the sense that yes, it was something horrible to happen to me, but the reason I was holding on to it wasn't for my benefit. Mm-hmm. It only benefited other people. And so mm-hmm. if you can figure out a way to discuss those things, I always encourage it. Maybe don't first start with, uh, don't start with stand up as the very first method. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, go to therapy, make sure that you've actually worked through it. So you don't break down crying on stage. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I always like to emphasize, and it's on my website as far as the, there's a frequently asked questions about, you know, how can you do this show? Mm-hmm. And you have to process the emotions. You have to, uh, you have to leave your heart on the page so you don't cry on the stage. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have that first can of worms be where you open up a very deep traumatic thing on stage and then have it bomb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's going to feel horrible. And I noticed that both in the Ted talk and the suicide note show that you owned it. I, it, it, it was something, it wasn't something that drove you, even though the depression and the, the desire to end your life did, drive you for a long time you drove it you 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 wrapped it up in a ball and you took control of it and i think that's what's different from anybody else like like doug stanhope talks about 
suicide and, and all that kind of stuff. But he talks about it in a fact that it owns him, that it, it's, it's part of him. And then yours was more, okay, this happened and I'm still dealing with it, but I own it. This, it, this is, I've put this in a box and I own it. it is that what you're trying to convey? That, that was part of the goal with, with turning it into the show mm-hmm. and, and, and making it exactly that something where you own it. And that's one of the things, if you watch the, the talk on Ted.com, uh, one of the things that, uh, I found really important was, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can't even own my own brain. It's just old. It's just, we're, we're old. Same. Now. I can't even remember yeah. <laughs> the things. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so, oh, that's exactly what I was, trying, what I was thinking of there. So, you know, people always will criticize comedy for talking about certain topics. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, you shouldn't talk about X, Y, or Z. But if you watch Oprah, there's like books written about these exact same topics. And yeah. These people are brave because it's empowerment mm-hmm. and they're owning it and they're controlling the narrative and they're not letting it control them. But all of a sudden someone wants to do it in the way that they feel the most comfortable with it. They want to tell jokes about it and that's their preferred method. And all of a sudden people are like, hold on, you're, you're an asshole. You're not a hero all of a sudden mm-hmm. because you did it. You know, you tried to express yourself in a way that you felt comfortable with, but I didn't like that. So that's, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do, mm-hmm. which I was, especially I was writing the, the, the talk um, and it was right during kind of this whole crisis, uh, of me too. And mm-hmm. there was an interview with vice news that they interviewed college comedy club bookers. And it struck me as horrific mm-hmm. because there was these very liberal college comedy bookers saying that, well, you know, even if a woman is talking about her own sexual assault, we're not going to allow her to joke about that on our stage. And in the era of saying, we don't want to silence victims, mm-hmm. Uh, that felt like the most silency thing of, well, you can talk about it, but only if it's in a way that we approve of, you know, cause we don't want to give you your own autonomy in discussing this thing that we say we should have autonomy over. Right. And so, I never so, understood the whole college thing. I, why they turned, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I, and I know you get, a you know, a vocal minority or whatever after a show and that leads them to make those decisions. But it seems like, you know, a college campus would be one of the last bastions of free speech, you know. And it is as long as it's not comedy. Yeah. And that's once again, yeah. if I if I had written a book about being raised in a cult and, you know, molested as a kid and mm. violent household and my sister in and out of psych wards, they would have brought me onto campus and I would mm. have been this fantastic bastion of look at this person who's had all of these horrific things happen, but then they regain their own narrative and they reseize it. But if I were to show about it, all of a sudden the you know college bookers are like, wait a second, hold on, that's that's wrong. Mm. And so that's I wanted to write the talk specifically number one as a defense for my show, but also as kind of a thing that any comic could just drop a link to when someone's like, well, there's nothing funny about, or you shouldn't joke about X topic. Mm. And the, although people might, they're they're listening right now, might be going, oh, okay, well, you know, there are some things that are triggering the X, Y, Z, you know, there are some contexts. That's exactly what the the talk discusses is you look at context, not a specific topic. Mm. Because there's a, there's always, it doesn't automatically make it good. It doesn't automatically make it bad. Mm-hmm. If I was advocating for people to molest kids, yeah, maybe that's not a good joke. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's punching down. But if yeah. I'm discussing how it happened to me and I'm regaining the power in the situation, uh, I always, so the joke, and this is, I understand it's horrible, but I love it. It's, uh, you know, whenever people see pictures of me as a kid, they're like, oh my goodness, you're a really cute kid. I'm like, yeah, 
I know. I was molested as a kid. They don't do that to the ugly ones. Like, <laughs> I was one hot baby. That twist, yeah. me empowering it, is taking this horrible thing that happened and finding mm. the only positive. And it's like, you know, I'm not advocating for it, but it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a positive thing about me. Mm. And uh, I now control it. You don't get to control me. And Gallo's humor is so refreshing when when it's when it's needed uh, i i've always been i've always joked about death because i'm not a religious person i've always joked at funerals and things like that and uh it you know sometimes people are taken aback by it and uh it's but for me that's the release that's that's my cry you know it, you know, that's that's how i grieve is is through humor like that and um so I I totally I totally get that, and I think a lot of people would uh, be in alignment with that. So let's jump let's jump forward. Uh, let's go forward nine years from when you started performing in Salt Lake, and you decide to write this um, suicide note. So how many times had you attempted suicide when you started writing it? So at that point in time, I was. Uh I almost had gone for time number two. Okay. So I was uh, kind of the very, the show actually centers around this, this moment where I, it wasn't like I really uh, was trying to kill myself, but mm. I want, my body wanted to die so much. I was literally immobile in the middle of a park in hundred degree weather for just two days, no eating, no drinking. Mm. And it was, I was just going to die. I was just mm. going to, I was going to like to say that, you know, it was my, I, I was going to be like the, I was raised in Oregon, mm. uh, Portland, Oregon. So like, you know, I figured like I would just, it would be like the giving tree. Like I would just die and then the earth would reclaim me Yeah. because <laughs> as an Oregonian, even in suicide, you got to reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah. And, <laughs> you are compost baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, it didn't work out. So it was really more of like a hot yoga class than a suicide attempt. But yeah. you know, that's, that's, uh, most suicides don't end in completion. That's kind of a misnomer. Mm. It's only one out of every 39.2. So you'll hear people talk about like attempting suicide. And you're like, well, you must not have wanted it. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, mm. You know, it's only one out of 39.2. Thank goodness. Only one that small percentage ends in completion. In fact, only one out of every, uh, it's only uh, one out of every three ends up in a hospitalization. Mm. Even So luckily most people attempt and it doesn't, it, they aren't, they don't complete the suicide. Mm. Luckily. Um, so that was my first time. The second time I was planning on killing. I was like, I wanted to go more, more bigger, better, uh, for how I was going to do it. So my plan, I was, I was going to take my car. I was going to drive it really fast, e-brake and turn my steering wheel and roll my car into an electric substation, uh, uh. uh that was up by my, uh, a place where I, I knew. And Listen, I know, I know it's not really logical in, in a lot of sense, but when you're, when you have suicide brain, it's not super logical. And I was also, I was a nerd that was raised in comic books. So I'm like, okay, so either this kills me or it gives me superpowers. One of the two, because once again, suicide brain, not very logical. Had you been watching like, Fast and Furious or? That's, it was, it was, it was actually really more Spider-Man. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, here's how I got my electro powers. Yeah. And I was like, I want to destroy myself inside and outside. So I was on the way there. I stopped and I picked up some uh, Mexican food to, to eat it. Mm -hmm. So I was, really, I was sitting across this substation, Murray Holiday substation in Utah uh, with uh, the steering wheel on one hand, chicken burrito on the other. Mm -hmm. And across the street, my death 
or the origin story yeah. <laughs> of El Pollo Electrico, the superhero chicken, electric chicken. And then I had this little kind of thing pop in my brain that was like, luckily it kind of interrupted the suicide brain. I was like, hey, okay, first of all, uh, great idea. Love, love the El Pollo Electrico, great name. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe instead of killing yourself, what if instead you went to the hospital and checked yourself in to the, to the psych ward. I mean, cause you can always come back next week and kill yourself and mm-hmm. maybe that'll give you time to Amazon prime in a Cape in mm-hmm. case you know, <laughs> it doesn't work and a mask. And so I did, I, I went and uh, I checked myself in. It was actually my fourth stay in a psych ward. I've been in them uh, since my first stay was 15. Mm-hmm. Of how messed up my life was. And I went, I checked in and that's when I was writing the, the suicide note was after this, it was going to be a second attempt. And then at the last second, I drove 45 minutes to a very specific hospital because I knew a friend that worked in their psych ward. And I was like, I'm going to go to Damon's hospital. So <laughs> I drove up to the McKady hospital, sat in there, uh, wrote the suicide note, had some interesting conversations with uh, the staff who did not understand my dark humor at certain times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the psychiatrist loved it, but I, I did they, they wake you up. They're like, Hey, do you want to go to group? And they'll wake you up when you're sleeping. And so I put a sign on the door that said, uh, to avoid hum, uh, do not disturb to avoid homicidal ideations. Yeah. And the nurses got very concerned and the psychiatrist <laughs> came in. He's like, okay, what's the deal? And I was like, okay, well we all know. Uh, so obviously you know that uh, lack of sleep presents in males as increased aggression. Mm-hmm. So in order to present homicidal ideations, do not disturb. And he's like, that's good. Mm. <laughs> so let's I mean I, I, I'm I'm trying to soak all this in so you had tried to kill yourself twice at the point where you wanted to do something creative with it and there's yes. at least three more times after that uh, so, four more. Four. Uh, so there's actually, so, so I don't count that second time that I almost killed my, I don't count okay. that. So there's actually, there's a total of six times. So there's okay. five times after that. Uh, so I had, uh, let's see, what was the next one after that? So I'm, you know, obviously artists were very creative. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, so I published the suicide note online um, kind of in advance. Cause I was like, I'm not going to have time to actually like write the rest of this later on. Uh, like I got, I'm just going to publish it now versus being like really suicidal, but like time to click publish. So I, I really sit, I was feeling a little better. And I did another piece in a very depressed day where I took um, some blood from my veins. I had some, some, uh, some actual syringes because mm. I was in Canada, Mexico, one of the countries where you can buy them legally over the counter. And I was like, who wouldn't want to just have those sitting around? Yeah. So I bought some and I withdrew two milliliters of blood. If you know what a milliliter is, it's not much. Mm. It is, like one twenty-fifth of a shot glass. But if you put, if that's like how much ink is in a pen. And I wrote this, what I thought was a beautiful um, thing with my own blood, Mm -hmm. this little note about how I was literally leaving my, you know, I was bleeding onto the paper. It felt very metaphorical to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And people kind of freaked out a little bit. And uh, they, they like, like police ended up showing up to the old place that I lived because I posted a picture of it online and they showed up to the old place that uh, I lived. And I kind of had this thought of like, wait, hold on a second. I posted, I, I distributed a 12 page suicide note a couple weeks earlier, but you guys, it wasn't until we had this visual graphic that you really cared about me or that you really <laughs> cared. 
well, fuck you. I'll just do it then. Uh-huh. Uh, so I tried killing myself later that night. That was not a plan originally. It was just more like, a, well, who gives a shit if apparently yeah. the only thing that people care about is, is snappy images on Facebook. Mm. Like, let's end it. Uh, there was that one. Um, there's a lot of what I call gray area of suicides that also happen too. And I have uh, some friends that um, we've we've lost in that area where you know what will kill you. You know what can kill you. Mm. You know, hey, if I mix these pills and these booze, it's really dangerous mm. if I take too much Xanax and drink too much alcohol, but I just don't want to feel. Mm. And if it kills me, okay. If it doesn't, who, you know, then at least I didn't feel. Yeah. And so there's a lot of those times where it was, uh, it was real, real rough. And mm. it was, you know, one of those, one of those nights where it was like, you know, you're already at this much medication and why not take a few more? Mm-hmm. And so it's, you're already kind of close to that line. So there's a, a few of those. There was one time I tried killing myself with uh, three full bottles of alcohol, mm. uh, alcohol poisoning way. Uh, I don't own guns for a reason, a very good reason. Yeah. It's the only reason um, that I'm still, it's because uh, there's a, a little quote I modified, but it, and it was a very one-off, but it's being able to tell the caliber of a gun by its taste. Yeah. <laughs> is a sentence I love. Yeah. You would definitely, uh, if you own a gun that, uh, ups the, uh, percentage of completion on a suicide by quite a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, females uh, have more, females have more attempts than males, but males have higher rates of completion because of their access to firearms. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a big deal. It's um, also probably one of the reasons most comics are still alive is because we tend to go more of the, the pill route versus the, yeah the firearms. Mm. So, um, talking about pills and talking about booze, uh, was substance abuse, um, pretty big for you or did you just, did you just go in and out of that? It's so when you look at the genetic markers for addiction, we can actually test the, your, your blood and see if you have an addictive, Mm. um, if something is causing addiction to you. It's one of the reasons we know that sex addiction is not a real thing. Mm. From an addiction blood level perspective, uh, but when you look at when people use things as coping mechanisms, that's often what we mistake as an addiction. Mm-hmm. And it's the person who is not addicted to pot, but they are trying to use it as an escape. And so, yes, they can technically quit whenever they want to, but then they're going to feel really bad, and they attribute that to an addiction. But it's no life is crappy, and you do, the only way you were solving it is was by escaping. Mm-hmm. And so. There, the, there was definitely substance abuse, not necessarily in a clinical addiction okay. setting. And a lot of times people will mistake that when you look at the numbers, um, 80% of the alcohol is consumed by 20% of the people, mm. but of those 20%, only 20% of them are actual people who have a right. quote unquote drinking problem. Yeah. yeah. And so I always hate misattribution. Um, so there was definitely a lot of stuff I was using for escapism and mm-hmm. to, to try to flee away from the pain and to try to deal with it differently. And ultimately I ended up just escaping over to Europe and having a fun time um, drinking over there. And that, that also helped a lot. Yeah. But uh, it was, so yes, though I was using things as a way to not feel in the moment Mm -hmm. and that's not the correct or healthy way to deal with it. But one of the things that uh, is kind of emphasized, if it's that or death, um, Pick the pick the taking the inappropriate prescribed amount of sleeping pills and mm. going to sleep, yeah. and then waking up the next day and seeing if it's better. Yeah, you know there is there is escapism is not your optimal, it's not the best option. Mm. But if it's your if it's that or death, let's see how tomorrow is. Mm-hmm. 
I want to get into some of these statistics, and I want to talk about the fact that, I mean, the the title of your TED Talk is, you know, that humor uh, is healing. And uh, I've, I've talked to other comics about it. Tom Dreesen is a very uh, a big advocate on yeah. uh, humor and laughter being a healing mechanism uh, for people who are sick and depression is obviously an illness. But before I get into that, I want to, this is something that I've heard myself and I want to know if you've experienced it. Do people talk to you and say, Colin, you are incredibly handsome. You're very charming. You're funny. How can you be depressed? The, uh, they watch the show and they're like, how are you still alive? <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. yeah. Like, and, and, I wrote the show so people would know. Yeah. yeah. And, but if somebody was to come, come at you cold, they hadn't seen the show. I mean, obviously you've heard this, the, yeah. you know, how can somebody with so much good going on, how can, how can you be a uh, depressed person who has tried suicide? Yeah, and that's that's exactly why I wrote the show so people could understand because there is that always that question of how you can reach that point. But mm. usually, the, the quickest route for me to, is just to say I was raised Jehovah's Witness, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'd want to kill myself too." Mm. <laughs> so right. That's really the quick shortcut. You tell yeah. them like that piece, and they're like, "Oh man, yeah, that's, <laughs> like, that's that's my shortcut." You can also be like, "I was molested. I was Jehovah's Witness, we were molested as a kid for you know six years, grew up in a violent household, chased with knives, <laughs> you know uh, that," and they're like, "Okay, well that's." You know, also I'm a I'm a brown person in America right now. I've got uh, uh, I gotta go to court because I'm brown uh, mm. is the easiest way to put it. Like I've got I've got I have tomorrow at two p.m. I have court because uh, I'm brown basically. Wow. So it's like yeah, it's a no, it's fun. There's yeah. nothing like uh, being even when you try to grow past that. You're like oh, there's certain pieces that are either psychologically embedded in you because of the history or mm. that are environmental that are out of your control. Right. that you, it doesn't matter. I'm always going to be a brown person in mm. America, though I can't change the brown part. Um, and I guess Michael Jackson is kind of questionable on that. Like yeah. maybe I could change it <laughs> a little bit, but, uh, and I already white present like crazy. Look at a picture of me. I do not look black. I do not look black. The reason I yeah. wear suit coats is kind of like my Harry Potter cloak with police. They're like, Oh, maybe he's yeah. one of us. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's got a really good tan. <laughs> and, so I can't change me. So I, I can try to change America, but that's a lot. That's a lot of work. Uh-huh. <laughs> so let's get, let's get into some of the, the statistics that you were uh, mentioning up top because, uh, and I know this is uh, peculiar to comedians and, and it's, it's really nothing that is a mystery to comedians, except uh, we, we all know that we're broken a little bit. But um, we don't know how and we don't know um, which disorder we have. So um, let's let's talk about those statistics. So the history of how I got these numbers going into the the talk for Ted dot com, I wanted to have accurate data. I Mm. mean, this is this is uh, a a big science community. Mm. And so I looked at all of the papers that have been published and there were really none. There was there was three studies on mental health and comedy. And two of them were just telling you that if a if a scientist thought you were funny, that you were probably going to die sooner because uh-huh. they rated people on a scale of one to ten and they looked at the age they died. That's not really mental health and comedy. Uh-huh. And the other one was um, out of uh, 
Oxford, and they did a, an actual study. And so I, I put out into the comedy community to get some responses, a very basic. This was not supposed to be... Uh, I. I was drinking a lot of Jack uh, Daniels and Jack and Cokes when uh -huh. I published it. So it was not like the most articulate.